If you would take your Bibles and open with them, open with me to Genesis 15. This is a very interesting passage. We've looked at it before, at least I think it was about six or seven years ago that I preached a sermon out of this passage here. So it's been a while. Um, and we're going to look at, at this passage and see what the Lord has for us this morning as we continue to look at how God is at work through his servant Abram. This is the word of the Lord. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So your, shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. What I want us to see in this passage and what Paul goes out of his way to show in Galatians and in Romans and in other places and what the New Testament sees going on in this passage is the fact that what the Old Testament has declared all along is that the Lord is our salvation, that there is no salvation apart from the Lord, that He is, in fact, the Lord of salvation. What I hope for us to see this morning when we get through looking at this passage is that we will really see that this is not some small matter, that to say the Lord is the Lord of salvation, that He is the one who brings salvation, can transform the whole way you live your life and that you process the world you're living in. Because you begin to look to Him in every way for that which is good and right and blessed. One of the things I think it's very easy to do is to 
even though we may doctrinally, we may theologically know, well, of course, it's God who saves people. We can't save ourselves. Oftentimes, we tend to live in a way that is more consistent with the fact that we believe that it's up to us to stay in relationship with God or to maintain a relationship with God and that somehow if we should fail, that all hope is lost. That somehow we're going to be put away. And the reality of what this passage is teaching us is the fact that God has not left it to the frailty of humans to save them. Rather, it is he who has made the provision and given a sign to Abram that salvation is from him alone and that when he delights to save, that salvation is full and complete. And so I want us to begin to look at that and to see how this works itself out. The first thing I want us to look at is the faith the Lord's word brings. This is the first time in scripture that that actual phrase, the word of the Lord, came to someone is used. Now, for those of us who've read the Bible, we know that when we get to the prophets, that what happens in this first section of this passage isn't all that unique. God says the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Habakkuk, or the word of the Lord came to Amos. And sometimes it comes in the sense of a vision, like with Isaiah, where he saw the Lord high and lifted up and he fell down like a dead man. But often what we see when the, Lord, when the word of the Lord comes is that the servant of the Lord or the prophet of the Lord gets into a dialogue with God. Well, Lord, if this is true, what about this and this and this? And what I want us to see is going on here is that Abraham will be talked about as a prophet. The word of the Lord comes to him. But what I want you to see is, is that God is bringing greater faith to Abram, not that he didn't already have faith, but I want you to understand that when God's word comes to a person, it begins to shore up in them faith. It begins to strengthen their faith. It brings the very means of faith to them. Now, how do we know this? Well, because when the Lord first spoke to Abram, where was he? Well, he was in Ur of the Chaldeans, right? I spoke to you when you were in Ur of the Chaldeans. And what happened? Abram was called out of that place where they worshipped the moon goddess, among other things, and was brought to a land that God said he would show him. That took a measure of faith. Where did that faith come from? From the word of the Lord. See, one of the things we need to begin to get into our mentality and really start to believe is, is that God's word actually has the power to change people. Not that people have the power to change themselves, but that God's word has the power to change people. It has the power to transform people, to make them something they were not before. Now, the reason why I say this is important is because, look, we all know the great resiliency of human beings. People could turn over a new leaf and change in many ways how they're operating. They can get more discipline. They can come up with better plans. That does not mean at the end of the day that they've truly been transformed. They've been changed from the inside out with the very way of processing the world. So what we're trying to look here is, is that the Word of God gets down to what some call the motivational structures of our heart, the way we think, what motivates us into action, how we operate. What we're seeing here throughout the life of Abram is as God's Word continues to come to him, Abram is not the same man he was. Now, is he still a sinner? Yes. 
Is he still a flawed person? Yes. Is he going to be perfect after this particular chapter is over with? No. But he is a changed man. He is a transformant. He's growing in his understanding of who God is, and God, by his word, is building him up in his faith. And we need to understand that when God's word is read, and especially when God's word is preached, there is a power that is going on there that is able to turn the world upside down. You understand, Paul said it's the foolishness of the preaching that we do, of this word. This word that changed you. You were once these kind of people. You're now this kind of people. How did that happen? The gospel has come. The word of God has been preached. And what I want you to see in this passage from the very get-go is that Abram is going to be a changed man because the word of the Lord has come to him. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I have an expectation that God is going to transform me, God is able to transform me, that God will transform me, as I hear His Word? Or do we come oftentimes with, well, let's see what the preacher has to say. Well, that was a good point. Well, that's something I could probably use at home. Rather than realizing that what really the Word of the Lord is doing is changing us, transforming us to be a different kind of person. The kind of person that would actually get up and go to a place that they did not know where God was taking them. See, we know people have done this. throughout. It's not just Abram that's done this, right? We know missionaries that went into parts of Africa and China and India where no other human being had ever been. Why? Because God had laid on them a burden and said, Go! I'll show you where you need to be. And we need to be the kind of people who begin to say that just like Abram, God is able to do in us the very same thing. Go places that you never thought you would ever go. Do things you never thought possible that you would ever do. Be the kind of person you never thought it was capable of being. See, in this passage, what we're seeing is that Abram, after chapter 14, and he's dealt with Melchizedek, and he's dealt with the king of Sodom, and he's had all that interaction. Sometime later, he's still sitting there mulling over in his mind, I don't have the seed. I don't have the promised child. What's going to happen? Is God going to do this? And you see what's happening in this passage is, is that God is bringing transforming power to work in Abram's life. Because look at how it, look what happens here. First of all, the Lord says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Another way that might be translated is, I am your shield, your very great reward. The bottom line that God is trying to let Abram know is this, Abram, you need not fear anyone because I'm around you. I'm the fort around you. See, long before Luther could pin a mighty fortress as our God, God was already declaring to Abram, I am a fortress around you. I am a shield about you. 
Nothing happens to you except by my divine hand. You're my child. I love you. I care for you. Now, the reason why I say that this passage could be translated either way of great reward or I am your great reward is this. Look, whatever God gives us, the best gift we get from Him is Him. And see, I think this morning, one of the things we really need to ask ourselves is, do we really believe that? See, the writer of Hebrews said that this is the truth of faith. We must believe that God is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Do we really believe that? Do we believe that following God is great reward? Do we agree with the psalmist that better is one day in the house of the Lord than a thousand elsewhere? Better is one day in your presence than a thousand elsewhere. To bring that down to a level... Better is one day with the Lord than an unlimited account at Pottery Barn. For some of you, that matters. Better is one day with the Lord than a thousand days at Disney World. See, does that strike you, what's trying to be said? What God is trying to say to Abram is, Abram, there is nothing better than me. And he's calling upon Abram to believe that. And you might say, well, how can Abram believe that? Because the word of the Lord has come to him. So what we need to understand is, it is by God speaking to his people through his word that he transforms how they process the world. Because see, in some ways we say, well, that's crazy. You can't even see God. You can't touch God. You can't experience God. I could go to Disney World and man, I can meet Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and then give me a big hug. And and while that sounds like I'm being silly, do you understand that our process of life often is the tangible is more important to us than the God who we cannot see but is the maker of everything tangible that we can see? And do you understand how idolatry is actually taking something that you can see and saying that is more real and more relevant and more helpful than the God I cannot see. And do you see how God is taking Abram who sits in the middle of a land where idolatry is prevalent, where everyone around him is worshiping something other than the one true God, and God says, Abram, you're not alone And don't let the fact that what seems to be slowest on my part to carry out all the things I promised you, don't let that keep you from believing. Don't let that keep you from trusting. Hear what I'm saying to you. Your reward is going to be great. Trust. Believe. Stand firm. Don't waver. Now it goes on to say this, because what we see here is that Abram now begins that dialogue. But you know, Eliezer of Damascus is going to be my heir. I'm childless. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Lord, 
Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. He counted it to him as righteousness. Now, that may not seem like a big statement. Obviously, for those of us that know what the New Testament does, that, that statement right there becomes this huge issue for Paul in Romans and Galatians. Hebrews picks up on it. James picks up on it. It becomes this mammoth issue that somehow this particular event in Abram's life became this huge overflow of everything else that God was doing. That right here, something transformative took place that Abram became a man who God said, in my sight, you're righteous. Why? Because he said, okay, I believe you. It it seems so small. He just said, okay, your word's good with me. And God said, you're righteous in my sight. Now, there's more to the story here, but I want us to understand that it's right there. It really is that simple. Sometimes we want to make salvation so complicated, and it really is that simple. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart, you will be saved. And right here what we see in Abram is God said, your offspring is coming. Don't doubt. And Abram was a transformed man and said, I trust the Lord. And God said, and that was credited to him as righteousness. In my sight, you are flawless, perfect, without any defect, without any error. You are beautiful. You are glorious. Now, do you understand how transformative that can be? Because many of us are weighed down with how we fail, how we don't measure up, how we don't get it. And to hear from God, because you're willing to trust me on this thing, I have made you glorious in my sight. You are beautiful and treasured. Do you understand if we begin to hear that, how that begins to change, how we begin to look at ourselves, how we begin to look at our world, how we begin to look at one another? Because see, we start to look at people very differently if we really get a hold of this. God looks at Christians and says, beautiful. Do we look at one another and say, beautiful? It's something for us to be thinking about and resonating in our own hearts about how we're processing this. What I want us to continue to press through, though, is how Paul begins to turn this out. If you would turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, I just want us to take a look at what Paul says about this faith, the faith that the, the Lord's Word brings. Turn with me to Galatians. You're going to have to go back to the... Way back in your Bibles, you're going to get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, past Acts and Romans and the Corinthians, and then you'll stop at Galatians in chapter 3.
And I want you to listen to what Paul says here. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, I wanted to read all the way down that, and I know that was lengthy, but I wanted you to hear what's happening here. Paul is reasoning out, looking back at this section of Scripture that we've been looking through, the life of Abram and the life of Abraham, when he gets his name changed, and saying, when you look at what's happening here, Abram was a transformed man. The Galatians were supposed to be transformed people based on the same faith that Abram had. And what's the temptation? The temptation is to see what I'm doing as what makes me changed. If I do these things, I'll be a changed person. And the logic of Scripture says, no, you must be a transformed person in order to do those things in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Do you understand the whole transfer of the logic? I don't do things to get right with God, and I don't do things to stay right with God. I am made right with God, therefore I do things that are consistent with who He is and how He operates, because I'm being transformed. And that leads me to the second point I want us to look at this morning, which is the fruit the Lord's promise develops. I want you to look at what happens here, because God tells him, God promises Abram, that he's going to have an offspring. And so he begins to be changed in how he processes. God doesn't leave him there, though. And I want you to notice how God doesn't leave us either. God doesn't just say, here's the truth. God knows we are weak people. We need to see as well as hear. He realizes that we've got five gates of senses, and we need to have all of them engaged. And if you've noticed, our sacraments engage our senses. We don't just hear We also see, we taste, we touch, we smell. We have all our senses engaged. And so God begins to engage Abram's senses so that Abram will begin to live differently. He will be a different person. And I want you to look at what God begins to show Abram. God begins to show Abram that, look, you, first of all, have to develop a sanctified patience, which, if you remember, is a fruit of the Spirit, That's also found in Galatians as a result of the gospel. The fruit of the Spirit 
It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And what we see God beginning to do in Abram is develop in him a sanctified patience. Abram, you're going to have to wait. How long? You're going to die. And the offspring I promised you are going to have to spend 430 years in the oven of Egypt. But rest assured, they'll come out on the other side. A blessed people. Now men and women, do you understand? You've got to be a transformed person to buy into that. It's sort of like this. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. So you've got to be transformed people to really buy into that. Well, Jesus says he's coming back. Well, you know, maybe he is and maybe he's not. I fear too often that we as Christians lose sight of the fact that he's promised he's coming back. He's promised a better world. He's promised a perfect place. And what he's basically showing Abram is, I'm going to start preparing you now for where I'm taking you. Here's the truth of the gospel. Paul just told us he preached the gospel through Abram. He preached the gospel to Abram. Through you, all the nations will be blessed. In your offspring will come the reality of salvation to all people. And what we see happening here is Abram developing the fruit which comes from righteousness that was given to him by God. That fruit of righteousness which begins to see in an act of patience. Now I want you to see what this act of patience God is teaching him. First of all, God is showing him in the sense of having him go and bring all these animals that there's going to be a covenant made here and God is drawing Abram into understanding how this is going to work itself out. But I want you to move down the passage and see what God begins to teach Abram just in the language he uses. Verse 13, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now I want you to think about this when we start to look at what's happening here. God is teaching Abram, and he's teaching us some very important things about how we look at our world, how we grow in the fruit of the Spirit. First of all, like I said, there's patience being developed here, but I want you to look at that as an active patience. We often think about patience being something that we're sitting on our hands trying to be patient. That's not the idea of patience that God has here at all. Abram is to be active. He's to be being faithful in his activities. And one of the things he's supposed to be faithful in is growing in his intolerance of sin. Do you see what the Lord is already teaching Abram? Abram, the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. What should Abram draw from that, logically? What the Amorites do is not good. You should not do those things. Those things are things that I hate. Why? Because he tells us he's going to destroy them because of those things. We need to see that that God hates sin and He's called us to hate it too. Part of our growing, part of the fruit we develop is to begin to hate sin. Hate sin in whom? This is the other part that we need to see is hate sin in us. 
Do you see what God is showing in this passage? God is showing something that's profound, and this really speaks to our culture. We live in a culture that's hallmark word is tolerance. Do you know that, that our culture does not have a hand on tolerance even close to God's? Do you see that what God is showing Abram is a tolerance for sinners? See, the church oftentimes is known in our culture for being intolerant of sinners, intolerant of people who don't agree with us, intolerant, intolerant, intolerant. But do you see what God is showing Abram here? He's showing him this sense that he does not tolerate sin, but he is long-suffering with sinners. Long-suffering. Why? 430 years. And who's going to suffer? God's people. God's people are going to suffer. Underneath the realities of these sinners, their choices, their bad ideas, their bad understanding of things, including putting them under the whip and making them slaves. It can't get much worse than that. But how often is our mentality, as we think about things as Christians, of us staying above the yoke, of us not being willing to put ourselves in the place of a servant, of us not being willing to tolerate people who are different than us and who are wrong in what they believe. You see, one of the things, if we got a hold of this, what would start to happen is people who really think about tolerance would start to go, I've never seen tolerance like that. I've never seen people that actually can show charity and love and long-suffering with people they wholeheartedly disagree with. But see, this is the problem that we really don't understand grace and mercy and we really don't even understand judgment because judgment, just like salvation, belongs to the Lord. Notice who's going to judge the Amorites. The Lord. Who's going to bring about their downfall? The Lord. And do you understand what we were talking about earlier in the passage that the word of faith the word of the Lord that brings faith gives us the ability to look beyond our present circumstances, the present morality of the age, and to believe that God is bigger and more powerful and able to deal with sin far better than we can. What we're called to is to do people who love Him and to grow in the capacity to show charity to people we do not like and we do not agree with. You see, men who begin to get this are men like Moses, who when God says, move out of the way, Moses, I'm going to strike down this stiff-necked, rebellious people. And, Lord, and Moses says, no, Lord, don't do that. Be merciful to these people for your great name. And what I want us to begin to see in this passage here is that we begin to see the heart of the Lord in this. Not that there's not a day of reckoning, not that when we choose sin and we choose to continue to pursue a life that is against the Lord, that there's not a day of reckoning. But that that reckoning belongs to God. His people ought to be people who are long-suffering with people who don't agree with God. Because God is long-suffering 
with people who don't agree with Him. And so part of the fruit that we have is being willing to show charity, being willing to show patience, being willing to show gentleness and kindness to other people we don't agree with. It's even to pray for people rather than saying things like this that I've heard, all those people on the coast just don't get it. Then we ought to be on our knees begging God to show mercy to the people on the coast. Not standing in judgment. Not sitting there saying those people and us. Because those people are sinners just like us who need to know a God who's able to transform them just like we've come to know. Now, the last thing I want us to look at then in this passage is the redemption the Lord's covenant assures. See, how can God show tolerance? How can God be merciful? How can God actually be willing to to tolerate this? Well, here's how we begin to see this working itself out. Look at what happens then in this covenant that God makes. God makes this covenant with Abram, and he has him cut these animals into pieces. And what I need to take at least time to do is we got to go to the schoolroom for just a minute so we can understand what happens in this passage. The schoolroom is this. Treaties in the ancient Near East were made between a great king and what he would call a vassal king, the king that was underneath him. And these two treaties would basically, this treaty would work something like this. The great king would make promises to care for the, for the little king, promise to protect him, promise to reward him, promise to make sure his crops were protected from bigger enemies, you know, the mashers and the smashers. The bigger king would watch over him and the little king would say, and I will show homage to you. Now, they would cut these animals in two and separate them and walk through them together. The great king would walk through and say, if I don't protect you, if I don't care for you, if I don't come through on my promises, maybe what's done to these animals be done to me. And then the lesser king, the vassal king, would walk through those animals and say, if I don't act obediently before you and do all the things I promise to do to give you tithes and offerings and all these things, then may what's happened to these animals be done to me. This is really short and sweet as to the point of what's happening here. Who walks through those animals? And who doesn't? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob walks through those animals for both people. I promise to do all these things for you, Abram. And if it's, I don't do them, may this be done to me. And Abram, I walk through these things on your behalf, and if you don't live up to it, may this be done to me. Men and women, how do you begin to understand a God who processes the world like that? What happens to people who really start to understand a God who's that kind of God? who you are a person who is going to fail, going to let him down. And he says, and when you do, I'll give my life in exchange for yours. You see, what we need to understand is when we read in the New Testament like we did this morning from Ephesians, it says you were once children of wrath, children of wrath like the Amorites and the Girgashites and the Kenites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites. And the Jebusites, those kind of people, those kind of sinners, those kind of attitudes and actions, idolaters of the worst kind, just like Abram. 
And God says, not only will I keep my part, I'll keep your part too. And you see how we get to the end of this. You see where the conclusion comes, right? Because this is why when we look at the incarnation, we ought to stand back in amazement because what we see is God coming to keep His promise. Because did Abram's offspring keep the covenant? No, they did not. They failed miserably. Unless we think we're better than them, we'd fail just like they did if we'd been put in their situation. But the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, the Word of the Lord came to bring faith to thousands. Not only that, but we also see in the person of Jesus, by the way, He acted. Don't we see charity and tolerance in Jesus? What was it that even those who were most intolerant could stand Jesus? He's so tolerant. Doesn't He know the kind of woman that's kissing His feet and wiping His... If He knew what kind of woman she was, He'd put her away. He had nothing to do with her. But He knew exactly what kind of woman she was. Doesn't he know he's touching a leper? Doesn't he know that will make him defiled? He knew exactly what he was doing. You see, for many of us, men and women, what do we do when a homosexual man or a lesbian woman walks into our midst? See, I can tell you what Jesus would have done. He would have loved them. He would have cherished them. He would have drawn them to Himself. He would have shown them mercy when no one else might show them mercy. You see, when the woman who's a prostitute or the person who's slept with a thousand people and if left to themselves are going to sleep with a thousand more, the person who hates God and has tattoos which say so, what Jesus does with those kind of people is show tolerance and love. We see it all through the Gospels. And not only does He show that kind of tolerance and love, we see ultimately that He goes to the cross. And what does He say as those kind of people nail Him to a cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, it is not until we become the kind of people that see how great Jesus has been for us that we will ever have the capacity to love people that are so strikingly different from us in every possible way. But who could be more different than Jesus from the rest of us? Perfect. Not practically perfect like Mary Poppins. Perfect in every way. And He showed love. And He showed tolerance. And He showed grace to sinners just like you and me. And if that message can get into our hearts, we cannot be the same. We cannot be. Because His Word changes us and makes us people who believe things we could never believe. I can hug people completely different than me and not be defiled because I've been transformed and that's what they need to be as well. I pray that God will give us a glimpse of that this morning that we will not leave this place the same 
and that the capacity to love and show charity and toleration for other people will be enlarged in our hearts. May God make it so. Amen.